This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hi, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hi, Max. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing today, Joris? I am quite warm. Uh, still and again, <laughs> the, uh, the the temperatures here and stuff, and my obstinate refusal to use air conditioning, which is uh, not paying off very well to me. But uh, yeah, besides that, everything's good. How about you? I'm good, thank you. Everything's reasonably warm in New York, but not too terrible, so I can't okay. complain too much. But who do we have on the 3D Pod today? Well, uh, today we've got two people on the 3D Pod, two different people. Um, one of them is Adam Stahem or. St- I wouldn't know how they, that's like originally, maybe it sounds Dutch to me, so I'm pronouncing it Dutchified, but I wouldn't know how to Americanify it, but we'll, we'll get to that later in a bit. Uh, and he's the founder of Trio Labs. And he started out like kind of like, he's, he's founded a company, uh, a surgery kind of related company earlier. He was an engineer by trade before that in robotics and stuff like that. And Trio Labs is, well, it's a really interesting kind of micro printing, kind of small, accurate parts kind of company that's got a, what sounds to be quite complex technology that might be able to make a lot of small things very accurately. And to help them in that journey, they hired uh, Scott Schiller. And Scott is actually a person who uh, I worked with a long time ago. He was at HP for about uh, 18 years or something like that and lots of different global, very, very senior roles, including being the, the business director of the 3D printing and the head of business development for the 3D printing unit. And uh, he was, uh, yeah, lots of other stuff at HP besides. And then he got involved as a, ma- a mentor at something called a Creative Destruction Lab. He's now uh, the com- chief commercial officer at Trio Labs. So he kind of came in to advise him. And now together with uh, with Adam, he's on, he's on the 3D Pond. So so welcome, gentlemen. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Joris. Great to hear uh, you. Yeah. So first of all, I think, I think we just want to figure out how how, well, I think we, we want to start about how, like usually we start a little bit, how did you get involved with 3D printing? So for Scott, I think it's 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 a little bit different. So Scott, how did you get involved in 3D printing? For, for that, that was back in your HTTP days, right? Yeah. So an interesting thing I noticed in retrospect in my career is every job I've ever had has been some variation on the idea of um, analog to digital and entrepreneurship. And so... Uh, I've worked at Honeywell in aerospace and avionics. I worked in HP initially in high volume uh, traditional print manufacturing, um, both of which were moving processes from analog to digital um, and then got very focused on manufacturing processes and starting new businesses. And uh, at some point there was an opportunity that arose to join a team in Barcelona that was standing up a new uh, 3D printing organization. And that was really the point where I transitioned from 2D printing to 3D printing. uh, And I've been at it ever since. That goes back to about 2013. Super cool. And then, and how about you, Adam? So you you yourself got started, well, started a little bit more recently than that, but how did you get into 3D? Or did you encounter it before in uh, some other capacity? Yeah, so 3D printing, I came into, you know, from the med tech space. And I'll, I'll take a step back. I mean, my uh, so my background is you know in engineering. I've, I had another company prior to Trio uh, where I was working on uh, laparoscopic surgical devices. That actually came out of the fact that so you know I came from a medical family. Got both parents are doctors. Been involved in healthcare uh, in a while and for a while. And my first 
little foray to that was through my senior design product as an undergrad, which is, I'll just say that's an undisclosed number of years ago, uh, but designed a device that ended up becoming my first company and, uh, and got into 3D printing to make parts for that device. Uh, I got into 3D printing, I think, the same way a lot of engineers get into it, which is I want to make some parts. I want to make them quickly. Uh, and of course, the dream of 3D printing is take my you know CAD file, hit control P and get a flawless part out. But what I encountered at that company was, you know, that dream and the reality of it can often be a very different thing. Uh, and that's really what ended up becoming the genesis for Trio is trying to make that uh, dream closer to reality, especially for, you know, medical devices. Okay. And how did you end up founding Trio then? Was, was there an idea first or what, what happened? Yeah, the idea was, you know, the parts that I was making, these were really small, precise metal parts. Uh, and so I have ended up spending thousands of hours in the machine shop cutting these parts uh, I've gone through printing processes, molding processes, casting processes, you know, everything out there for making these types of parts to see what could work and what would make them effectively, you know, make them quickly, uh, the right materials, the right price point, that kind of thing. And so I had some ideas uh, for basically how to take some of the advantages that you get with, you know, powder metal processes like uh, MIM, um, but making it digital, kind of like what BinderJet does, but at a smaller and higher precision scale. Uh, and that's really what ended up being the genesis for this was there were some technical concepts that I wanted to uh, approach there. Uh, and then, of course, I spent a while doing, you know, doing IP diligence, doing some bench test work, just testing out feasibility. And when everything started to look good, that was really when things took off when we started the company. And at what point, at what point did you get Scott on board then? So Scott joined us about, I want to say a year, year and a half ago. Is that about right, Scott? Yeah, it was April of last year. Okay. And, and why did you decide? Because, okay, you, you're, you, why did you decide to join this? Why, why another adventure? Yeah, it's a really interesting um, process that played out. Uh, but, you know, fundamentally, I got connected to Adam uh, through my previous boss uh, at HP. And what I really was attracted to was, um, you know, this was a company that was very clearly focused on a very specific set of applications, use cases, and market segments. And one of the things that I've always seen as one of the challenging dynamics in manufacturing in general, but in additive especially, is the tendency to try to do all things for you know anybody that might be interested. Um, so I was really attracted to the focus. As it works out, my wife was uh, somebody that worked on the early stages of adoption for robotic surgery in the VA system here in the U.S., and so I had a lot of exposure to those dynamics, um, and that's where finally uh, my wife's work experience and mine, you know, had a chance to intersect, uh, and I could leverage all of her experience as well. So Adam and I started talking, and um, initially I started working, you know, kind of in a collaborative way as an advisor, and then that transitioned to more part-time, and then ultimately to full-time, and here we are today. So that's the backstory. You could have been on vacation forever, man. I could have. It actually gets better. Do this yourself. <laughs> uh, you're going to work too much again. You know, you just know you are. You're not going to like kick back 38 hours. You know, you're not. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> so 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 guys, first tell us a little bit about this technology because it's like yeah, it's what is Ripple, it? super cool name, <laughs> resin infused powdered lithography. So how does this work? Yeah. So this is it's a lithographic process, uh, and you can think of it as basically, you know, a photolithographic version of uh, binder jetting in some ways. Um, but basically, you know, it's, it's like a lot of other 3D printing processes in that it's a print and sinter process. So we print a green part, then we sinter it in a furnace. Uh, the key differences really come into 
how we can produce, you know, tap density green parts and do it at ultra high resolution and do it fast enough that it's scalable to volume production. You know, those are really the key differentiators. So there's been a lot of innovation around just the mechanics of the print process itself, how we handle materials, things like that. Uh, and what that's led to is, you know, it's a process that prints at five micron layers and in five micron uh, voxel resolution, but with the opportunity to go even further than that. You know, what we've seen with uh, the five micron resolution that we've achieved is the precision and tolerances and native surface finish uh, end up rivaling CNC machining. And that's something that our customers are you know, really surprised by and really impressed by and are, is really valuable for them in a lot of applications. Uh, and that's certainly true in the laparoscopic space, catheter space, where you've got a lot of parts in the, say, two to five millimeter range. Uh, but even more so when you get into parts that are sub two millimeters or even sub one millimeter in size, then you start to have to push past that. So one of our goals in our tech pipeline is to bring out two micron printing uh, in a lot of these same materials, uh, which we've got a number of folks that have already expressed a lot of interest in that. So was it like a process constraint? Were you like only able to make small things? So you're like, okay, let's do this. Or, or, or did you invent a technology and then refine it and refine it and only focus on this in the beginning? Or what was the, the idea here? So I mean, the company's been around about eight years. We've done a lot of technical development leading up to now. And you know, we're now commercially active during all those years of tech development. A lot of it was around refining the technology and seeing where we could push the limits to. You know, seeing what sizes it could scale up to or down to, and then also just looking at what else is out there in the marketplace. And I think the, the key insight is if you look at printing, say, macro or even mini type scale parts, there's a dozen options out there, right, for both plastics and metals. There's a lot of established processes and technologies. And frankly, some of those technologies actually do a pretty decent job at those size scales. So for us to have a unique position or really offer something different uh, that was really what encouraged looking at this smaller size scale. And the deeper we got into that, the more we realized, you know, there are a lot of people trying to get to that size scale, but not a lot succeeding at that size scale, especially in metals. And that was something that our customers really responded well to. You know, it's, I, I think this is smart for any entrepreneur to look at this from a, you know, you go where the market tells you there's value. And the response has been pretty overwhelmingly positive um, in terms of the precision and size that we can reach with this technology in that range. And given the breadth of applications available, that's that really ended up being the area that was smart to focus on. Using this like as a service bureau, or are you selling the machines themselves? Currently, we're selling parts, uh, and that I think Scott can dive deeper on uh, some of the logic behind that. The easiest way to think about this is when you're bringing a brand new and and very novel technology, you really want to put a lot of thought into how to make adoption as easy to, as possible. Uh, so initially, we're selling parts and really providing a fair amount of consulting to understand how to take advantage of the technology uh, as as best as possible. Um, and we're doing that, providing that service to, in the med tech space, the language is more contract manufacturers, but effectively service bureaus, as well as, you know, brands or OEMs, um, really anybody who's working on projects where they would like to take advantage of this technology. We try to make it as easy as possible. Okay, I think yeah, I think that's a brilliant strategy. Generally, revenue is quicker, that rolls in the door quicker, all that kind of. Do you think you're going to sell machines, or, or are you going to stay like this, or you don't know yet? Or so I'll start here, but Adam uh, can add thoughts as well. He's been thinking about this for uh, far longer than I have. You know, I think in general in business, you learn uh, never say never. Um, and you know, for the current phase, what we're really focused on is what helps drive adoption. And so right now asking people to spend, you know, a large capital investment, learn a brand new technology, 
figure out how to make money with it, you know, that's a big request. So we, we want to kind of remove that as a, a challenge. Uh, so in the current term, that's really all we're thinking about is making it as easy as possible by selling parts um, and helping customers with their projects. Over time, as those conversations evolve, and and honestly, we've had some customers already asking, you know, how does this play out over time? Could that happen? We're open to it, uh, but really what we're doing is letting the market and the adoption process itself kind of define when and how that might make sense. Also, in terms of just um, maturing the technology and, and uh, handing it over when it's the right time is a consideration as well. Adam, other thoughts there? I think that pretty well covers it. I mean, I think this also feeds into our focus in the medical space where, you know, in the med tech field, when it comes to how devices are manufactured today, the dominant paradigm really is contract manufacturing. You know, very few medical device companies own their own manufacturing uh, to a significant extent. So we're operating in that ecosystem, really the way that that ecosystem naturally operates, uh, which again, decreases friction to adoption, which uh, as Scott said, that's our primary objective here. And then okay. these are all, or is this intended as more of, for experimental purposes or, or these to get things approved? Or do you see this as, you know, because it takes a long time to get a medical device approved, obviously, for, for implant, implantation in the U.S. Yeah, there's some really yeah. interesting <laughs> dynamics in this space. Um, and one of uh, the um, dynamics here is uh, we really work with people who own all of the regulatory uh, management processes. We don't own them ourselves necessarily. Oh, that's Neither. nice. It is. Um, and it's actually, you know, a little bit lower friction to adopt this technology than I might have guessed based on previous experience with other highly regulated industries. But it always depends on what's the use case and what's the application. You know, something to consider is that, uh, and I think Adam can speak to this better than I can, but... Um, you know, when you think of injection molding, the materials that are used for that, the um, process for getting to fully dense parts really mirror traditional manufacturing processes. So first and foremost, that makes it a lot easier to get over the line in terms of um, an alternate source and an alternate technology. Um, and then beyond that, as I said, uh, we're not necessarily the regulatory accountables. Uh, we have to collaborate with our customers we, of course, have to follow uh, manufacturing processes that they require, um, so we're not completely divorced from it, but largely they're the ones that are accountable and manage that. And they're very well you know, established timelines um, for when new technology can be introduced, and not all of it starts at zero. Sometimes it can happen as a second sourcing alternative. Sometimes it can happen as a late stage change. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways where this technology can get into the product development stream at a variety of different times in product development. So it's not so difficult as it might seem. Mm -hmm. Adam, do you want to speak to that as well? Yeah, I think the other thing to point out there, you know, Max, you mentioned uh, implants. And those, of course, are you know the highest regulatory threshold of anything you go to in the med device space. A lot of our focus and a lot of our customers are in, you know, class one, class two surgical devices. So that provides a lower threshold, you know, just from the get go. Um, given the materials we're working with right now, that's, you know, those are the applications that make the most sense. And from our perspective, you know, focusing on applications that have a shorter time to market and a shorter regulatory path also makes a lot of sense uh, in terms of the types of returns we can get from those projects. The other side of it is, you know, as we expand our materials portfolio and go into implantables, those do become an option, but they're not something that we're, you know, inherently forced to go after early on. 
although we have had a few folks that are in the implantable space look at the idea of doing prototyping work, early R&D, you know, with non-implantable materials, with the idea that by the time they need to get to DVNV and so forth and to further approvals, you know, we will have those implantable materials available to them. So there's really enough pull for what this technology can do that we've had, you know, customers willing to work with us around, you know, understanding where we're at today and what our pipeline is going to be and aligning that with their pipeline as well. But you guys have made product, therefore, that, that's reached market, so to speak, or reached this market, even if it's a class one or class two medical device. So at this point, we've made product for, uh, for R&D and even some you know, late stage development. We're, we're not actually making product today that's going you know, inhuman. Um, oh. That'll change next year. Uh, so we're going after you know, ISO certification later this year. And once we get through that, then, then we can start doing that kind of work. But, you know, That's just to add some commentary in terms of how to think about this technology versus any other 3D printing technology people have uh, exposure to, you know, I think the thing that really stood out to me was that this is a viable final uh, part quality technology um, from the get-go. And I think that's been one of the things that we found the customers genuinely surprised about. You know, you're getting um, a dense stainless steel part as the starting point. And so this is not something where people say, well, this will be fine for uh, prototyping, but we'll have to do something else for manufacturing or whatever. Generally, most people look at it as, well, this is an alternative process and it makes fully dense metal parts. That's awesome. Uh, now that opens up a whole new um, set of opportunities in terms of their design, innovation, and ultimately manufacturing processes. Um, and so that's been, uh, you know, kind of a fun part of uh, driving adoption of this technology uh, versus others that may have more of a hurdle to get over. Yeah. And I think the other point to add to that is uh, in terms of <laughs> shock value, at least when we send out samples is around precision and surface finish, you know. Everyone's used to seeing 3D printed parts that require some amount of polishing, finishing, what have you, you know, secondary machining. Uh, in a lot of cases, what we're producing is truly a net shape part. It's actually competitive with CNC machining in terms of tolerances and surface finish. And that's something I think has been really surprising to a lot of customers. And I think that in a major way is what makes it viable as a you know, net shape final part alternative process. I mean, I think just the other week we had a customer you know, calling us after we sent them their first order saying, how the hell did you do this? You know, it's that kind of uh, surprise given what they're accustomed to seeing, especially in the additive space. And that's not an uncommon response. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice response from a customer. <laughs> that's very interesting. I mean, that, that, that that's incredible without the finishing steps as well. And, and that would also mean that the process itself, you know, requires less handling and there's less post-processing cost. And that makes it uh, uh, very viable, very, very uh, relatively inexpensive, perhaps, uh, than some alternatives. And, you know, right now there's hundreds of thousands of medical device parts for endo and all sorts of small uh, cameras and robots and stuff like that already in, in, in people. So this is a, this is a viable market, but, and I like the focus, but you know, you could also go outside of medical. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about maybe broadening your focus and saying, you know what, we could get revenue much faster if you went to other, other, other areas. So I'll start here. Uh, Adam will definitely round out the conversation because uh, he's been looking at this for quite some time. Um, in general, you know, we want to have a very crisp, clear, articulate strategy for driving adoption. So first and foremost, um, minimally invasive surgery um, as a general area of focus for building the foundation of the business is really the strategy. 
And then beyond that, there are use cases that I would say are more, um, uh, you know, potential high growth area breakthrough capabilities, um, such as uh, microneedles, uh, which, you know, have been a, you know, a strategy and an approach that people have been trying to do for a lot of years, but have really struggled with the manufacturing processes. And what this technology opens up is, you know, something that can be a breakthrough there. Um, but that's probably step two uh, in terms of where we focus. And there's lots of use cases and applications for both drug delivery and diagnostics. Having said that, you know, with every technology, what you ultimately want is that you've identified every, you know, highest and best use application that you possibly can. And we know from experience that there's no way to know all of them. So part of, you know, having discussions like this is also kind of communicating out to the market. We've got the ones that we're focused on, but we're open to exploring others. We would invite, you know, people that are interested to check out our website, um, engage with us, uh, and we're at least willing to um, engage in dialogue to explore beyond that. Uh, but with that being said, there's a lot to unpack just with minimally invasive surgery and um, things like, uh, you know, solid, hollow metal microneedles. And with that, I'll kind of open it up to Adam to take over. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think for any startup, it's key to be, you know, focused on a certain set of applications that you know you can execute on uh, when you've got constrained resources and constrained time frame. So I think from that perspective, that's a big part of what drives our focus on medical because there's a massive set of applications that we can go after with a fairly modest material set and with essentially identical processes, QMS and so forth uh, to support those efforts. So between minimally invasive surgery and uh, drug delivery applications, that's certainly enough to you know support a really massive ramp and massive opportunity for us over the next number of years. Uh, as Scott said, though, you know the the key value here is the technology that we've developed. And as, you know, as a company commercializing that technology, our obligation is to maximize how much value we can create with that. Uh, so it's certainly incumbent upon us to go into other application spaces as well, but doing so mindfully uh, as we, you know, look at where, which are the applications where we really truly add value, uh, where there's something truly innovative to be developed there. So to that end, you know, yes, we know that there are applications beyond healthcare. We've done some looking in those spaces, um, but a lot of our focus really remains on healthcare, uh, largely because there's a wide array of applications where we know concretely the value we can deliver there. Uh, and I think especially when you talk about, you know, microneedles is beyond uh, the surgical space. I mean, in the surgical space, just being able to make smaller and more capable instruments and so forth, that has value across the board. And that's been a trend for a while. And that's one that we can continue to support uh, in drug delivery. You know, a lot of folks have looked at microneedles as an opportunity space. For the most part, that has meant uh, polymer microneedles that dissolve. Uh, there's been less attention paid to hollow microneedles that aren't limited in terms of dosage. Uh, and that's an area where, you know, we've, we're working on establishing a few partnerships where there's been a lot of interest on that. Because uh, there are a lot of applications with therapeutics where you need to deliver more than you could fit in a standard soluble patch. Uh, so like diabetes care, for example, where you're delivering insulin is one of the obvious use cases, but there's a lot of other use cases for handling all kinds of chronic illness uh, where we can provide a lot of value. Yeah, I love microneedles, and, 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 but it's one of these things that is, is always five years away. We've been hearing <laughs> a lot about that in, in, in additive as well as people have tried to make them with additive or try to come up with applications to deliver 
very targeted drugs and very, very targeted doses and stuff like that. So I think it, it could be that in and of itself is, is, is an incredibly big opportunity. Absolutely. I think one of the key insights there is if you look at some of the hurdles that microneedles have had previously, uh, you know, soluble polymer microneedles have existed at least in a lab context for 15, 20 years at this point. There's tons of academic data to support their value. I think finding the specific use cases where they can have the most advantage uh, to help with that commercialization effort has been key. And of course, with any drug delivery system, there's always regulatory hurdles that come into play. The issue that we see, though, is that, you know, those are useful for a certain number of cases. And frankly, those have been produced in volume um, through molding processes for a while. So while, you know, I would say additive might have a role to play in polymer microneedles, you know, there's maybe less of a strong value proposition than in the metal side of things. And the reason is, if you look at alternative processes, there are ways to make polymer microneedles that don't involve 3D printing that are very cost effective. In terms of making metal microneedles without 3D printing, there are much fewer options. And especially when you want to get into some of the geometries that can be useful, uh, especially in the hollow microneedle space and even in solid microneedles that are coated, there are certain design advantages that additive has that you can't find through another method. So this is the feedback we've gotten as we've engaged with uh, drug delivery device companies is there really is something unique there. And I think that's the question that's really the question that we all need to be asking as we're looking at any application for 3D printing is what is the demonstrable value that additive provides that nothing else can do? And if you have a good answer for that, then you have a good application. But that's that's really, a, and I think it ends up being a challenge in a lot of application spaces, but it's certainly something that we've seen a strong response to uh, in the drug delivery space. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I mean, too many people, like, they find an application and it's like, oh, we can make a lightweight part and they charge ahead, you know? Things like, uh, for example, in in, in, uh, in implants, you know, it took uh, e-beam and, and uh, powder fusion like thirty years to 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 become a mainstream kind of uh, uh, technology for 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 implants, right? And spinal and the knee and all this kind of stuff. And and if we look at the advantages there, there's a huge amount of advantage there. It's like it's cheaper. The the, the implant is literally cheaper than a CNC plasma uh, finished plant implant. Uh, there's and there's a ton of other advantages like you change the modulus, you can have a wicking effect to to, to bring in more blood, uh, you can have novel designs, you can design things quicker. Even with all those advantages, it took them decades, right? So I think I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Is like, is there something nothing else in the world can do? Because that the switching costs are huge for for people coming to additive, and they're just not going to do this if they don't absolutely have to, essentially. Absolutely, you got to always look at you know where is the hair most on fire. Okay, I think I think that's I a like really that really good way of looking at. It. But 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 you guys have been working on this since 2015. So, do you have really patient investors, or is the really patient investor you, or how does this work? <laughs> good question. So the first five years of the company, um, we funded on you know pretty minimal resources. We did have some very patient investors, but we ran for about five years on about a half million in total investment, and that's when it was you know me full time plus a few part time engineers working on equity. So. We're really good at running on a shoestring. Uh, now, as it so happens, at the at that point, we were starting to get to a point technically, and uh, with our customers, that things were really starting to turn up, and we had found some really good fit points for this technology, and so we were able to you know raise more money and start to scale up. And so, about two two and a half years ago, we moved from a two hundred square foot uh, research lab into a seven thousand square foot production facility, and things have been accelerating uh, substantially since then. Okay, okay. And what's the path of you guys going forward then? So you're, you're talking to all these companies, but there's going to be a gap. Like, like you know, uh, Max said it before, that it takes a long time for these things to come to market. Are you going to, so, so what's the plan going forward? 
So I think there's a couple things there. One is, you know, we're engaging companies at a variety of stages of R&D. Uh, some folks are just at the whiteboard stage. Some are, they might have been at a later stage and then ran into a problem around manufacturability. And so they're looking for solutions. And so we can step in at a later stage and that shortens our time to scale with them. Um, in other cases, it's companies that are frankly out on the market. They're looking for a cost reduction. I mean, that's one of the, one of the really interesting things we see here is if you compare this to legacy tech, and especially in the catheter space, one of the most popular options is really five-axis CNC, you know, micro-machining. The cost of those parts is pretty astronomical when you talk about, you know, build materials costs you know, at the types of scale that they're operating at. You know, when you're running some of these uh, more complex five-axis systems, it can cost you north of $3 a minute to run that machine. So it doesn't take a whole lot of complexity uh, before you get a pretty expensive part. So from that perspective, there's an opportunity for us, you know, especially once we get ISO certification in place, there's an opportunity for us to go after uh, second sourcing opportunities. You know, our process, because it doesn't involve the, you know, time per part that you get with CNC and a lot of the other affiliated costs with CNC, you know, we, we always love in the 3D printing space to say that complexity is free. And I think we all know it's not entirely true, but it's definitely a lot cheaper than with CNC, right? It's a lot easier to make complex parts with uh, with 3D printing uh, than with uh, CNC machining. So there's opportunities for us to go after on a variety of uh, at a variety of stages of product development that allow us to ramp uh, more quickly than you might expect with you know if we were just starting on day one R and D with all of our customers. Yeah, and I think I think also when people say complexity is free, I'm like uh, as in it's always going to be hard. You know, it's because <laughs> I, I don't really uh, take that as a gospel because it is, it is really, really complicated to, to switch stuff. And, you know, we, we, and switching designs is always uh, uh, is, is always more of a problem than people think. I was, I was just looking at your materials, right? You would think maybe you guys just focus on 316 or like whatever, just a, a regular steels used in a lot of things. But you guys have really done a whole bunch of materials, right? So you have uh, 17.4, 316L, and all these kind of different steels. So you're really going for a lot of medical devices. You've got that, you know, titanium 6.4, right? But you've also got things like alumina and zirconia and tungsten carbide. That's like tungsten carbides are used for scalpels and stuff, right? So, so what, you just decided to go for everything? What's the material strategy thing here? Is it everything people want or? Well, let me clarify. So today we're actually only doing 17.4. So we have a bunch of materials listed that are in the pipeline. Those are coming uh, in the longer term. So... Right now, it's just 17.4. We're going to be expanding to other stainless alloys later this year, uh, going after titanium next year, and then expanding beyond that. So the materials that we have listed that are in our pipeline, that's largely based on customer mm -hmm. feedback. You know, We tend to respond to when we have two or three or 10 customers saying, hey, I want X material for these applications. That's how we prioritize what materials we go after and when. And so far, you know, 17.4 has been very well received. It's a very standard surgical material. Uh, 316 and 304 also come up a lot in conversations. We'll be adding those fairly soon. And then you know, we talked about a, a bit about implantables earlier. TIE 64 Cobalt Chrome, those do come up in conversations. We have a number of folks that are really interested in implantable applications for this technology. So that, that then also becomes part of the pipeline. Adam, okay, okay. you may want to speak also to sourcing of materials and some of the flexibility we have there. Yeah, I mean, one thing to recognize is, you know, it's a five micron resolution process. So you would correctly assume that we're using, you know, smaller powder than what a lot of the other uh, folks use in this space. Um, but the nice thing is there have been powders developed for micro MIM uh, that actually fit fairly well with the process. So in a lot of ways, we're able to leverage uh, a very similar set of materials than you'd see in MIM. Uh, and so I think Scott alluded to this earlier using the same powders, the same furnaces, the same, you know, basically everything after the printing process is identical to MIM. 
which helps a lot with adoption. You know, you're not having, now contrast that to say powder bed fusion systems where you've got something that is metallurgically really unique uh, compared to legacy processes. From a metallurgical perspective, we can produce something that is, you know, very, very similar to what a lot of these companies are already comfortable with. And that certainly helps with uh, qualifying, you know, for prototyping, but also as people look ahead, as far as what validations need to happen to get to volume production, that looks a lot more manageable when you look at a process like this versus something else that where the metallurgy might be more complicated. But so far, you know, you guys are kind of like working with these early stage, late stage things. You're, you, you know, the, 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 the resolution seems to be really amazing like that. Um, how do you hope to really gear it up, take it up a notch? Because you're saying, okay, you're, you're doing a kind of well-balanced approach to slower companies and uh, bigger companies. Do you need a huge cash injection to get the next step? Or is it like you just need one of these products to go into the market? Because like I could imagine, what, what kind of series can you do? Because what's the next the next step you, you really want to aspire to? Let's say? I can start on that one. An easy way to think about this is, you know, what does the adoption process look like for customers? And so in simplest terms, you're going to have some number of years. Let's say it's somewhere between, you know, uh, one to four, one to five years of R&D process um, where it's really, you know, um, various stages of product development, uh, prototyping, innovation, stuff like that. And then they go through a stage called DV and V, uh, validation and verification, uh, which is, you know, working through regulatory processes. Um, and then from there, it transitions to manufacturing. And in this space, you know, we tend to model five or six years for manufacturing, but frequently it's seven years or more. So imagine that with every customer that you work with, if you work on a project and there's a set of parts uh, that come out of that project. And then that project works successfully through R&D, DV&V, uh, and then into manufacturing. It doesn't take a huge amount of those for the business to become pretty substantive. Uh, and that's really the what we look at as the model, or I mean, the foundation of the business um, in minimally invasive surgery and surgical processes. If you start layering on top of that uh, customers that are starting to um, expand into drug delivery and diagnostics, you know, it, it isn't too hard to imagine how scale goes up from there pretty dramatically. Uh, and then, you know, right now, the other thing is we're largely focused uh, in the U.S. and Americas, but over time we will be expanding that to other geographic regions as well. So there's a lot of different expansion vectors um, that play out, but, you know, candidly, Trying to describe that as a deterministic thing that we have fully characterized at this stage um, would be ingenuine. I think we're working through this kind of layer by layer um, and working very hard with the customers that we have right now uh, to make sure the technology delivers as much value as possible. So that's that's kind of how adoption looks and scales out over time. Does that address your question? Yeah, totally. totally. And then, and what's the part size then? Because the- do we have a defined part size? Do you think that'll yeah, change? What's, my, what's the limit? You mentioned I don't, like, you get to speak to a 3D printing audience, so it won't be all in inches. <laughs> Please, no. Put it in metric. Okay, good. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, we are fluent in both, uh, you know, thou and tenths and microns, so we're used to switching back and forth between different dialects here. But uh, yeah, in terms of uh, part size, right now we're looking at max part size. I think it's about five by seven by 12 millimeters is about the biggest we go. But what we also talk to people a lot about is, you know, and this is especially relevant in MIS and in catheter devices, 
the sweet spot is in this sort of two to five millimeter size range. And that could be, you know, for a robotic surgical part, that could be something that's five millimeters diameter and maybe a bit longer than that in length, but you've still got two dimensions that are under five millimeters. Those tend to fit pretty well into this. Um, but that's, that's the size range we're operating in. Uh, what we see is when you get parts that are much larger than that, they generally have, you know, looser tolerances, things like that, where they don't strictly need the process. And when you get into that size range, not only do you get parts that truly need the benefits of this process, you also get parts that are going to be economical to produce, not just for prototyping, but in volume production with this process. So for a variety of reasons, you know, parts that are certainly no bigger than that larger envelope, but even in some cases, you know, fairly substantially smaller than that envelope, uh, we see a really good fit with the technology. The serious question, usually for 3D printing, we have a thing where it's like, you know, we're viable from 100 to about 3,000. And then, but do you think because of the surface finish, you can do super high volume stuff like hundreds of thousands, series of hundreds of thousands? Is that what you're going to, or are you not really focused on that? That's absolutely part of the, uh, the long term goal with this. I mean, the fact that, you know, we can pack a certain number of parts onto a build platform, you get some efficiencies there, the, the native speed of the process. And also, as you mentioned, the fact that there's really, no secondaries in a lot of cases that come into this, or you know, in a few cases we've heard folks that might want you know electro polishing down to a certain range, but you can do that pretty efficiently even in high volume. We've geared this really in a way where, regardless of what the requirements are, we can get to a place where it can be done efficiently at massive scale, not just a thousand or three thousand, but fifty thousand, a hundred thousand, even a million part runs. Uh, that becomes viable with this with this type of technology, and that those are the kinds of numbers we can readily see in the surgical device space. You know, we often see devices that go fifty thousand, hundred thousand plus when they're in, uh, you know, in commercial activity. Uh, in the drug delivery space, the numbers are even more considerable, uh, and that's where you start needing to be able to scale to not just millions, but tens or hundreds of millions in some cases. And even in those cases, we see a viable pathway to being able to achieve that. You know, that's that's a longer term, uh, you know, timeline to get to that because a lot of these drug delivery device systems take, you know four or six years or so to get to market in some cases. Whereas with you know, medical devices, you can be looking at one, two or three years uh, in some cases. So yeah, in terms of the scale, there's, there's a really, really high ceiling to what we can get to with this technology. I like the example that the, you, you mentioned catheters and stuff like that, but that's not very expensive stuff, right? So, so, so far also on the 3D printing front on medical device, we tend to focus on smaller series than, than you have ambitious to focus on. But also, we, we tend to focus on, on the, the more expensive stuff, right? The, the, the keyhole surgery stuff and all this. But not like you guys are also looking at like far cheaper uh, kind of devices, right? Well, when we talk about catheters, I think it's important to realize we're talking specifically about steerable catheters in, for the most part. Uh, and within those steerable catheters, we're often talking about critical components in those systems. So if you look at how that's done today, those are often done through, you know, five axis micro CNC. Uh, for a lot of these devices, and those parts can be fairly expensive. And in fact, what you often find is there is cost pressure there where you might have, you know, most parts in that entire assembly would be quite cheap, except you've got one or two or three parts that are actually pretty expensive. And so the company producing that device, you know, those parts are their biggest headache. So if we can provide the opportunity to come in at, you know, lower cost and with greater design flexibility there, then we're providing a really significant amount of value to them. Okay, so we're talking like the, the $1,500 to $2,000 catheters. Okay, okay. Okay, have you guys looked at, uh, like, I'm fascinated by this whole idea of this cryoablation, because that's also similar, a part that kind of maybe, that would be really exciting to, to, to make uh, additive parts for that kind of thing too, right? Yeah, and I think if you look at that, uh, there's potentially probe tips that got into that space. And I think there's some similar dynamics around, you know, other electrodes, electrocautery and thermal systems, you know, RF systems, 
that can be done there. I mean, the, the physics involved when you talk about cryoablation are pretty similar when you talk about other forms of uh, ablation and cautery uh, in the EP space. Uh, so yeah, there's some there's some interesting stuff to go in there. You, you should be careful though. You don't want to get me nerding out about uh, EP applications because I can go for hours. <laughs> I can validate that that is a true statement. <laughs> <laughs> okay okay um uh but um so so if you guys are looking and you know we always think of kind of like in the medical space we we, we everybody in additive is saying they're not innovative they're slow they're boring you know but you guys are seeing a lot of things you know is that space really evolving are there a lot of startups bringing device bring really really new things to the market because you guys of course have a better view of this and than what's publicly available right resoundingly yes no, Adam, <laughs> feel yeah. free. To yeah, I, I think the key thing here is, you know, especially if you look at the robotic surgical space, that's been around long enough. And, you know, I haven't looked at this too closely, but I would hazard a guess that some patents have started to expire in that space. That's maybe opened up some opportunities. Uh, but we see a lot of new challengers coming into that area. And so that leads to a lot of, you know, lean engineering teams looking to innovate quickly and they're looking for additive solutions to help support that effort. As an anecdote, in the U.S., you know, one of the most important regions for um, engaging the market is, you know, Northern and Southern California, whether it's Orange County or in Silicon Valley itself. Uh, there's a lot of companies with a lot of presence there uh, really working on breakthrough capabilities. And it ranges from all the big names that you know uh, down to, you know, uh, challenger startups. Um, so it's a, it's a very healthy ecosystem. And is it difficult? And how do you get these guys to work with you? Because like uh, you guys are all talking about like longer term, it has to be longer term stuff. How do they, how do you give these guys the comfort and saying these, that you'll be around five years from now? It's a, it's a really interesting dynamic in this market space. Um, one of the things that you find in go to market is that uh, in many cases, there are um, folks that are, uh, operate as independent sales reps manufacturers, sales reps, and they may rep a, a variety of different uh, companies and technologies, but they're always looking for who they can work with that's going to be around, you know, kind of just starting now um, and getting them before they get rolled up into PE or something like that. Um, and they're always looking for, you know, a great entry point with companies that are starting and then want to stay with them as long as they possibly can. It's a very unique uh, ecosystem in terms of how you know this um, the engagement process works, and they provide enormous value because they've been in the industry in many cases for you know twenty or thirty years. They provide a lot of value in terms of helping the manufacturing companies understand the needs of the market, how they're evolving, uh, where they're going directionally, um, and so you know we have found that this has been maybe less of a hurdle than we would have anticipated in terms of being a new entrant. The other thing is that this is technology is something that has both breakthrough capabilities, but at the same time also has some very traditional processes associated in terms of the materials that are used in terms of, you know, what kind of dense properties they get uh, in terms of, um, you know, what processes they use post green part. And as a result of all of that, uh, we haven't found it very difficult to help people get comfortable with all of that. Adam, anything you would, else you would add to that? No, I think that covers it. I mean, it's really about uh, you know when we're fitting a need that they've been able that they haven't been able to solve elsewhere. Yeah, that's really addressing a key pain point. Again, it's 
where's the hair most on fire? If someone have, is having a real problem and you can solve it, then that uh, that wins you a lot of points pretty immediately. Okay, okay. And and you know, if you're looking at this this five year time scale, where do you guys hope to be like five years from now? Do you, do you, are you up and running? Uh, are you uh, you know you have factories all over the world? Well, what is kind of like the you know kind of milestones you guys hope to uh, hit by then? I think our major focus of the next five years is continuing to build out our customer base in the surgical space. Uh, in parallel with that, we'll be developing projects in the drug delivery space. But the scale that we'll achieve over the next you know four or five years, especially, is largely going to be driven by surgical applications. Uh, so it's really about building out our capacity there, building out our customer base there. Uh, and executing on those projects and helping support our customers through the commercialization and scale. So it's, you know, our scale is driven by their scale, essentially. All right. All right. So, guys, uh, thank you so much for, for, for your time today. It was really great looking into your world and, uh, and trying to see what you guys are trying to do. And, you know, the potential seems huge. So, so, so uh, yeah, I wish you guys a lot of success with that. Well, thanks. We appreciate it. And always good to catch up with you guys. And, thanks for uh, having us. It's been great to be here. And Max, thank you for being here as well. Oh, yeah. It's a fascinating look into the medical space and, and better applicational usages, if you will. So thank you, George. And uh, thank you for listening. This is another episode of the 3D Pod. Have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.